Welcome to the Gallery Girl podcast. Gallery Girl is a London-based website and curatorial platform dedicated to contemporary art from across the globe. In this podcast, we're going to focus on female artists, curators and practitioners who highlight art with roots in West Asia and North Africa. Enjoy. Welcome to the Gallery Girl podcast. Today, my guest is Moza Almatrushi, an artist who is also training to be a pastry chef based in Sharjah, and her work consists of cooking, storytelling, and summoning higher powers. Welcome, Moza. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have to do this conversation. Yeah, me too. So I wanted to begin right at the beginning. What was your first introduction to art? Okay, well, actually, um, fun fact, my mom was an art teacher, and I used to go with her to school. She used to teach in a public school. She, I think she used to teach the sixth grade, Um, (laughs) and she stopped taking me once I started to become a teacher's pet when I wasn't even in that class, and I would, like, hand her all the colors and, like, be her little (laughs) assistant. Um. And uh, my mom's father actually was a musician and a photographer. And I always found that to be such a big deal, but it was never really made into a big deal, um, neither in our family or like generally, like that wasn't a thing, even though it was a rare thing to have a person with such a profession Mm -hmm. uh, coming from the Emirates or even from the States that united to become the Emirates. Yes. Only happened in 71 and so I never really thought about it much uh, until I went to school for my BA and uh, I went to the fine arts college uh, in Zayed University and uh, my goal was to become an architect okay. so I just I did the I specialized in interior design um, but because it was within the fine arts college I had to do my art foundation uh-huh. Uh, and art history and and all of that but I have to say even then it was quite limited like how um how we approached art mm-hmm. um it was still looked at as like this is what you do if you're just if you if you don't feel like doing any of the other majors okay <laughs> <laughs> and so um the year th- that summer when I graduated in 2013 I um, I interned in the UAE Pavilion in the Venice Finale, oh, wow. um, and that was, I would say, my first true, real introduction to art, because they also, in that internship program, they pushed us to write reviews about mm-hmm. other pavilions, to kind of like write articles about our experience, um, and kind of become, you know, a part-time bloggers. Yeah. Um, and so it was really, it was really interesting, because it really forced me to look at so many different eras of art in one place in such a crazy time as well Uh, where you have contemporary art you have modern art and you have renaissance art and all of that in one place and you have to go see it all and this was really truly the first time for me to see something I would have only encountered online yeah Um, and I guess during that time they have people from all over the world flying in to show their arts. You really have everything in one time. Like Venice yeah. isn't that big, so... Yeah. And um, after I returned from Venice, I worked in, in a couple of places 
doing a lot of admin work, a lot of um, public outreach work for like art and design um, offices, I would say. And I thought maybe this is my capacity that I would just work behind the scenes to put up shows and to um, put up fairs and so on and so forth. And then shortly after that, a couple of years after that, I got nominated to be part of the uh, Sheikha Salama Emerging Artist Fellowship, mm -hmm. which is this program that is that runs in partnership with the Rhode Island School of Design and the Sheikha Salama Bint Hamdan Foundation in Abu Dhabi. And if you complete it successfully, you're eligible for a scholarship. Um, and that's what basically happened. Um, I, I got the scholarship after a year of that fellowship. Mm -hmm. And that took me to this late in London. Um, I think a year after I've already had done the, the fellowship because I wanted to take my time. Yeah. I was already working a full-time job as well. And um didn't want to kind of like jump yeah. at the chance so quickly. I wanted to take my time and see like where could I go and what could I do. Um, I was still very fresh in my practice. Um, but yeah, that's my, so what that's did, my start. Yeah, that's cool. Um, it's interesting to know you came to, it's not something that you started, you always had a dream to do, you soaked up all this information and you started. So like, how did your practice begin during this time? Like what did it start out um, looking like? My practice started, um, so not very long ago from when I started my practice, I experienced this really devastating loss. And I think that that was the catalyst for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so even without realizing it, I was always trying to revive something or um heal something or it was always about the idea of healing and decay and revival and really just I don't know like getting getting stuck in that emotion yeah of, uh, of mourning mm. um and so I started by going to these areas in in the mountains um there's an area in Sharjah called Mleha it's it's really beautiful and uh, there's mountains there that have been quarried and uh, excavated for for a lot of uh, stones that are used in buildings mm. and uh, it's not the only area that that's happening in um oh sorry that's my cat <laughs> 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 but um in general like there's this constant shift in the land mm. in in the uae that that really I don't know, it, it always prompted me to kind of like feel like I'm in a constant state of mourning, uh, like something, like mm -hmm. I'm mourning the, the desert becoming like an industrial uh, area or a project, you know, like um, yeah. whatever the project is, it's always like turning into some sort of project, whether it's residential or industrial or commercial. Um, and these fences keep going up into like landscapes where we would have just escaped the city um, yeah. and it was just transforming constantly. Um, and so I just, I very quickly decided that I want to become a land artist. I want to go into the land and mm. kind of like do installations there and think about it. And I got in touch with this amazing artist, um, He's like the, the godfather of land art in, in the Emirates. He's called um, Muhammad Al-Mansouri. Mm -hmm. 
or as uh, people know him as well as Muhammad Ahmed Ibrahim. Um, and we actually had a public talk together and we we realized after I've met him that he's done work in the 70s that I've never seen, yeah. um, that I was also doing um, when I started my practice and mm-hmm. that just kind of like overlapped. Um, but something didn't really feel right about um, going to these spaces and shifting them even further. I felt that was counterproductive to what I was thinking of yeah. and experiencing and feeling. Mm-hmm. And so every time I went into those spaces, I felt like there was this kind of like negotiation with, with the space. Um, who am I to shift things further? Who am I to take from the space or alter things? Uh, what kind of agency do I have uh, over these choices? And so I kind of really started and left it there very quickly and decided that I wouldn't kind of brand myself again as something and yeah. just stay um, stay faithful to the, um, I guess, the intuition that, that drove the work mm-hmm. as opposed to what the work looks like and... Um, I really have this kind of like aversion into, um, towards um, categorizing myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, even, even though I work with food, like I wouldn't call myself like a food artist, uh-huh. for example, because I feel like with these things, uh, and, and not to say that that's a bad thing, but, but it really makes you, um, it, it brands you for and sets you up for some sort of like commercial yeah. aspect your work and I don't think that that's a bad thing but I also don't think that that's what I want yeah yeah and I guess you then you get stuck in a box as well so yeah 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 so when you came to London how was that did you find your work changing was it a crazy, um, I imagine it being crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were a few points that I feel like I'll never forget. One was um, uh, in the beginning of my course, I was showing my work just as everyone was to mm-hmm. kind of like introduce our work to each other. And I was saying things like, oh, I'm, you know, here is an installation I've done that's a bunch of flags, um, but my work is not political. Um, I'm kind of in this uh, position of being someone who's a bystander at all times and just observing what's happening around me. And then someone was like, but your work is a bunch of flags. How can you say that? (laughs) And that really struck me. I really went home that day thinking about why, why would I say that my work is not political? And it really stems out of this fear of working in... I don't want to say the Gulf, but maybe the Gulf and more specifically the UAE, that you really can't say those things. Mm. Um, When I was working um, in an art institution, we had to censor these words or find ways around them. So if someone's work is political, we never outwardly say. And I feel like, again, sometimes it's, it's not even important to say that someone's work is political because that's very inherent in a lot of people's practice yeah. or choices or, you know, whatever, whatever that it is that they do. I feel, I feel like even uh, working with certain material, even if you're not a political artist, that choice is a political choice. Yeah. And so from my experience from working in, in that art center and generally just 
how it is here, um, we wouldn't say if something is religious, political, sexual, we kind of have to find ways around it constantly uh, to be able to push the work out there. Yeah. And I feel like that just really sunk into my psyche and um, I was a little bit brainwashed, I would say, and I, and I really believed what I was saying. Mm-hmm. But then that quickly took a turn and I was like, oh, no, that's not the truth. Um, and I also so I came to London because a lot of my friends before me who got the scholarship went to the US and they were not having the greatest experience of their life Um, they they often felt uh, objectified and dismissed and um, there was only one narrative that people had to kind of like uh, be involved in um, and so I was like, oh, well, I know that London is very diverse. Yeah. And so I should be okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> that also very quickly changed. Oh, really? <laughs> because, yeah, because the Slade is a small school, okay. which was mostly, you know, white middle class. Um, there's a white middle class demographic that that runs kind of like how the thinking is mm-hmm. or how the, how everything is shaped. Um, and I wouldn't say that that's, you know, that was intentional, but I also wouldn't say that that's not because there wasn't really much effort going into changing that. Yeah. Um, and, and so that for me, that was, that was a big, um, that was very frustrating and that really, really affected me. Um, I decided to water myself down so much just so I wouldn't have to unpack constantly, explain myself, yeah. have to be some sort of representative of, uh, of a culture, a spokesperson for some, you know, a heritage that people don't understand. Yeah. And they don't have to understand it. But I just felt that my tutorials were often just wasted on questions that no one would be asked uh, no one else would be asked right. because they're understood mm-hmm. and so um for for a long time in in school I was just doing things that were super general mm. and once I did these uh, ceramic tiles and I was interested in in these objects um, um and how they can be read as imagery mm-hmm. and I showed them to um my tutor one of the tutors who works there and uh, and they said, um, did, have you ever looked at the iconoclastic imagery of ISIS? And I said nothing. Mm-hmm. And I said nothing that related to anything, um, not neither religiously or culturally or any kind of thing that would kind of um, prompt this kind of question. Yeah. And that really sent me that really sent me into a a shock. I think I was shocked for about like a week or two, really questioning like, why why was I asked this question? Mm. Um, Even when I actually had the courage to go back and email email this tutor and and go like, I don't really understand how by me showing you my ceramic tiles that I got asked this question and I got a half-assed answer. Um, which which wasn't really thoughtful, and this is when I really um, there was there was a shift there for me that no matter what I do, 
I'm going to be read a certain way. Yeah. And so I need to really just not give a shit anymore and just do what is going to further my practice without you know there's this there's this constant need for validation I feel in school um which I couldn't get away from and that was the moment where I felt like enough uh I I can't I can't get this validation and I can't and I don't have the energy to to seek it out so Um, so so do you feel that you almost empowered yourself like going against what other people like because you're just saying whatever like I'm doing what I want to do and that's me and my work and if you like it great if you don't tough luck yeah but I wouldn't say it was all me um at the time I was part of a group called the Arab Art Salon I'm still part of it it's just that we were active in a very different way because we were all in London together it was a group of Arab artists who were all not all most of them were in a similar situation where they came in to do like art programs Mm -hmm. and pathways in in the UK and uh and uh some of them were actually just you know, from there or living there. Um, and so we decided that we would turn to one another to uh, talk about our work or other things that just don't require for this time that is wasted. And yeah. again, in like unpacking and explaining ourselves. And it was, it was this very, you know, safe inward facing group where we just had each other for that and so that kind of removed the need for me to um, bring up certain topics when I'm in school Mm. there was that and then there was me working with platforms such as laundry art and working with curators such as Lorraine and Healy and um, I felt that was another aspect of uh, me not having to just you know, exhaust myself in school and just go over certain ideas and works with, with you know, other people who really understood mm-hmm. yeah. um, where I'm coming from, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So when you went back to Sharjah, how did your work shift then? Um, so <laughs> the plan was not to move back to Sharjah. So the plan was to, um, when I graduated uh, from my... Um, from my MFA I moved to Cairo to do a residency in Townhouse Gallery for three months that was pretty life-changing as well that's where I met my current uh, project partner Marwa Marwa bin Halim and I met a lot of amazing people there and um, also it was very nice to be in a place where everyone uh, spoke Arabic because not even in the Emirates like we we barely speak Arabic here because it's such a diverse country. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're having to speak with everyone in English. Mm-hmm. But you but you kind of, you know, the, the way English is spoken here is different, for example, than the way English is spoken in, in the UK. Because um, I felt like the way I speak English here is not divorced from the way that I um, speak Arabic right. and like the way that I talk about like superstitions and, uh-huh. and stuff like that and like yeah. gin or whatever <laughs> but, but in the UK um, I had to kind of like find this really rational language parameter right. um, that I couldn't really um, uh, get across and so um in Cairo none of that existed because everyone speaks Arabic and whoever moves there is kind of 
forced to speak Arabic right. because that's how you're going to get around. Yeah. Um, and so that was also like really incredible. And then I wanted to come back here to do um, my pastry chef diploma uh, because it's uh, only three months and way cheaper than doing it anywhere else. Yeah. And uh, um, I, I thought maybe I'll get my diploma, I'll work here, I'll set up a studio for a little bit and then I'll, you know, finish up the process to move back to London. But then being um, stuck here because of COVID and um, just working again here and... Um, I don't know, I feel like my roots spread out w without me being able to control them. And I just felt like I don't, I can't see when I'm going to be able to move back to London. And so moving back to Sharjah right now makes sense for the yeah. time being. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask about the work that you were doing with Marwa Ben Halim, actually, because it's a cooking project, right? Yeah. It looks super fun. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? It is super fun. Um, so Marwa bin Halim, I met her, like I said, in Cairo. She was working on her um, on her exhibition, The Cookbook, where she, I mean, I can't even begin to explain her exhibition because it, it had so many layers about how to use food as a political metaphor, like mm. in sayings. And uh, she replaced uh, some uh, speeches by by making them sound like the the president or the dictator or whomever is speaking is talking about making a meal which was incredible yeah and so uh right before she opened her exhibition i i went to her studio to see what she was working on mm -hmm. and um we stayed in touch after that and so when i came back here and everyone was in lockdown she was you know she's she's based in cairo in egypt still and and i was here and we got to chatting and we said, well, why don't we come online and just like cook and see who wants to join us? Mm. And when I was in Cairo, one of the things that I uh, did was I collected a lot of old Arabic cookbooks uh, in an effort to find out why our, I would say, greater uh, regional um, cuisine has a lot of... Um, Western dishes that kind of like make up the portrait as well uh, alongside like the Middle Eastern and North African, um, I hate saying Middle Eastern, I would say West Asian and North yeah. African um, culinary heritage. Uh, and so I wanted to see like how, how that happened through whom and through what recipes. And so I showed her one of the books that I had by Nazira Nicholas um, or as she's fondly known in Egypt as Abla Nazira. Uh, and she had this book about uh, quick and economic dishes for working women. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, we'll use the recipes from there while we question why those recipes and question why, um, why working women as well, like they, they were still um, expected to maintain the household while being pushed to wor work. Yeah or to go out in the workforce and how does that reflect on us today uh, in this region as well or in our respective regions um, and then it just it really 
grew organically from there because it started out with those very simple questions and then it became much much more it, it became a platform where we felt we had to really dig deeper than talk about you know certain things like the the binary of the kitchen of being either anti-feminist or a feminist right. space yeah. and really really try to go beyond those questions and those notions and it's been a challenge because up until now we're not we're not a funded project we actually just got rejected from a, a funding <laughs> from a funding opportunity but um but it's still it, it's this thing that now consumes us it's our full-time job and uh we're not just going to be using uh, abla nazira's recipes there there's a a few other women who wrote really prominent cookbooks at, at around the same time and we want to be able to explore as much of them as we can. Yeah, amazing. So you've been making these dishes over Zoom, I'm guessing? Yes, so we have our uh, live Instagram sessions and then we save them in, on Instagram as well and Facebook. So the goal is that we have these live sessions where we Um, make those uh, dishes with the guests mm -hmm. every time and our guest is an expert on something okay. so our first guest was an ethnographer and uh, anthropologist our second guest was an artist who is also a food tour guide and um, uh, a food blogger and then our uh, last guest was or is an um archaeobotanist and paleoecologist oh wow that sounds very <laughs> impressive I don't know what that is but I would like to have <laughs> and we've managed to have really light and fun conversations uh, so far and so we thought that you know because that that's what the platform allows as well you know people can't we can't really hold people's attention on Instagram or Facebook yeah. for something that is like super you know um super deep and uh, and so we felt it's important to get funding so we can commission people to write about certain things and really expand on them or respond to them visually yeah. or audibly or or creatively and make all of this accessible um hopefully next year or the year after accessible online for mm. people to kind of like download yeah uh, so you have it as a as a as a resource you know if you want to research um food and kind of like these yeah various um topics then then you can probably find it there yeah this food is yeah. so interesting and we don't even think about it that much but like it's so intrinsically no. tied to culture or like even the other day like I was saying that my mom made baklava for my birthday and it was my grandma's recipe and I never had it before and it had cinnamon in it And I never had it. Oh. With, I've never had it with cinnamon in. And then I, I went on Wikipedia, <laughs> and Wikipedia told me that <laughs> Armenians are famous for putting um, cinnamon and spices in it. So oh, no way. Yeah, so it's like she's. My mum was always saying, you know, different villages do it this way, and they do. But it's it's never like you said. People don't write it down so much. It's like handwritten in my mum's ancient personal. Cookbook. That's amazing. <laughs> But, yeah. That's so amazing, and these differences make um, make a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> they make okay. <laughs> these little <laughs> these little changes make a big difference 
because that that's a whole story of why this village uses this and not that is does it have to do with class does it have yeah. to do with Geography what was available well. yeah yeah and the the labor that goes into uh, you know harvesting certain things and and all of that i feel like in this age is a bit beyond us because if we if we think about food we automatically think that you know not automatically but a lot of people like the first thing they would think of is i would get this from the supermarket yeah. and not from like you know the farm or even how the farm is and and what it can give you mm. yeah and even if it's not in season it's imported from like across the world which is kind of a new phenomenon which people don't think about yeah yeah exactly and that's i mean for us that's the reality here we import 80 to 90 percent of our produce because not much can grow in the desert and they want to change that uh now they they want to establish food security because of what happened now yeah. and 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 you know that it's a reality that one day it's not going to be really easy to yeah. import everything yeah um but then i was questioning something about that because when i was looking into it i saw that they were farming quinoa and kale which is absolutely fine mm. but then i was really just questioning who is the demographic that consumes right, right. produce like quinoa and kale and what who are we prioritizing by um growing certain things yeah yeah that's an important question okay so speaking of food your work has often incorporated food and now you're training to be a pastry chef what drew you yes. towards edibles I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um the first project I ever worked on that had food is something that I, um, it, it was a research that I've done about irreversibility. It, it was still when I was working with land a lot, mm -hmm. but I wanted, it was the moment where I was trying to remove myself from using like earth as a material. Um, and so I, I was researching these flags that were painted on mountains across mm -hmm. uh, a, a certain route uh, from coast to coast uh, on, um, on the Emirates. And so I tracked, uh, I would say, about eight flags at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was really fascinated by this display of love and devotion and patriotism, but at the same time ruining the very land and place uh, that you love mm -hmm. uh, by doing this act of like painting these flags with really toxic um, toxic materials yeah. um, and and then I, I really was hung up on the idea of irreversibility. Like you can't go and chip those paints away. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, well, it's, when you see it, that's not the thing that, that um, strikes you is that, oh, you know, this is horrible and irreversible. I, I really don't think that that's, those are the sentiments that, that people get when they drive by these flags, uh, especially here. And I, and I was thinking of food and how food can also have this irreversibility and can display that irreversibility in those ways where it's not violent mm -hmm. um, and it's almost not a thing that you would stop to look at and so I made these series of acts where I put milk into tea and um, film sugar burning 
And I also um, was making uh, like uh, an Emirati bread called uh, chabab. Mm-hmm. And the thing about chabab is like it, uh, the when it bubbles, the bubbles really um, create these holes in the bread. Um, and so I was filming these things and and slowed them down and displayed them like that. Um, but after that, for I would say maybe a year or so, I never went back to the idea of food. Uh, I was told by a curator that I wasn't ready to work with food. Okay. <laughs> and the thing is, the, this was again, I was younger and I was still um, very fresh in this. And I had this concept that you should trust the curator. Mm. And I feel like this opened up space for a lot of um professional abuse where it was like you know no one but me is is right and and then I kind of like have to produce the vision of the curator as opposed to like stay true to like what Mm -hmm. what I want to do thankfully I grew out of that um but then going back to food uh and going back to the story where I kind of like had this shift in London I just felt like I don't want to speak anymore and I feel like food has been this um potent source of symbolism for ages Mm -hmm. and that it will do the job for me and so I started performing with food um, and I started looking more into like the stories I wanted to tell that I was so worried I would get asked endlessly about and I just used food instead to tell the story Um, ultimately that that's what it is and I think that's what I always wanted to do is tell a story. And I'm always hit by either uh, censorship or um, not being understood. And I just felt like to be this, the kind of storyteller that I want to be, food was the, the thing. It was my tool to, to do that. Yeah, amazing. So how was, I know you're, Partway through pastry chef school, yeah. is it called pastry school, culinary school? Anyway, uh, culinary school. <laughs> <laughs> How was that um, experience going and training to be a pastry chef? Um, so, uh, on one hand, it was amazing because um, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a great cook, or I didn't go into this like already having such a vast knowledge of like how to cook and what to do and they really advertise the program as like a zero to hero situation yeah. and I was like well I'm definitely a zero um so I'm, I went into that um program and I really uh, didn't even like read up on like chefs and I was always fascinated with food like visually mm-hmm. but I never really did my proper homework and when I went there I got really shocked because um the culinary industry I want to say is like carries abuse like a badge like the harder you can take it is you know like that that's something that's you know that people are proud of you know yeah. you can take so much um physical and emotional and kind of like mental overload the whole time and you can work long hours on your feet and you can take you know abuse from your head chef and it's okay if you get like a pot thrown at you and and stuff like that and (laughs) it was really scary um on the other hand though and I don't know if I already said on the other hand that I'm running out of hands now but I was really um 
fascinated with like the science of pastry. Yeah. Pastry is very precise. Uh, unlike, um, I would say, hot kitchen or cold kitchen, where you can kind of like fix the flavors yeah. if you mess them up to an yeah. extent, um, or you don't have to weigh things as often. We had to go in every morning and weigh every single thing. And um, every little thing makes a difference in pastry. Mm. And um, before going in, I I was... Uh, mostly vegan yeah but then because we would use eggs and and butter and and dairy um it was much more than it just being a choice but I, I was really fascinated with them looking at these things as like fat content right. and hydration and um binding agents mm-hmm. and setting agents and things that would make something rise and I feel like this is magic this is you know I, I don't know. I feel like this is what it might, must be like, like seeing a plant grow, but really quickly. Yeah. Um, and I just, I found a lot of magic in that space. And, and really, this is what fascinates me. And I also thought going into that, that I want to make a career out of it only because it's a bit more sustainable than um, my art practice at the moment, because I'm, I'm a bit all over the place. Mm. And I felt you know that that could be like the constant that sustains me but also feeds into my work and and that I think yeah yeah so and lockdown is easing in Sharjah a little bit and you're going back to pastry school sorry culinary school (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you're continuing this project with Mara Ben Halim so do you think in the future your art practice is going to stay in this, there is going to focus on the Abla Nazira project. Is this what you see your future looking like? So um, Marwa and I quickly put a deadline to our project. Mm -hmm. And I think we gave ourselves this year and next year to fully and wholeheartedly work on this before we, you know, push it out to, to become accessible. Mm-hmm. And and even then we would be sharing whatever uh, content we have, but, but I mean, just collating everything and pushing it out because really it is truly a full-time job. Okay. And, um, and, and also we found like with a deadline, we would reach a goal much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is our focus at the moment, but it's, it's not our, I don't think it's our forever focus. Also, um, I think Marwa and I really miss our personal practice as well. And, and this is, you know, this is, um, taking up a lot of our time in a good way, but you know, it won't be, again, it won't be sustainable if that's what we do for, for many years. Cool. So are you getting back? Are you making personal work as well at the same time? Yes, I am. I just uh, set up a, a studio in Sharjah. Exciting. And yes. so, yes, <laughs> I'm actually preparing the kitchen there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, once the studio is fully set up, it's, it's, it's getting there. Um, and I already, I already started to um, work on a few things. I think the thing that was very economic for me during this time to work on as well has been writing Mm -hmm. so I've been developing a few texts and I think visuals will follow soon uh, as soon as I'm settled in my studio oh amazing it's so exciting to hear everything you're doing and 
I kind of want to come and visit you at culinary school, but um, <laughs> COVID. <laughs> um, maybe soon you can come to Sharjah. Maybe. I'll bake you something nice. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it might be a while, but by that time you'll be a Michelin-starred pastry chef. <laughs> <laughs> it already sounds like you have a lot of knowledge. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so nice to speak to you and hear about everything that you're doing. Um, people can find Moza on Instagram, Instagram at Moza Al Matrushi, and on there I think there's links to cooking Abla Nazira. Or yes, I think thing Abla Nazira. Yeah. yeah, so amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you.